Assalamualaikum. Uh, you're listening to Unscripted. Today we're talking about media integrity for numerous reasons. Chapel Hill, Peter Roborn, The Telegraph, and a host of others. With us here today, we've got Colleen Boulevant, activist and from Cage, and we also have Nadim Dawood, historian and academic. Colleen, let's start with you. This week we saw Peter Roborn with his big old article talking mm-hmm. about the Telegraph and why he left. Of course, he did say he resigned in December, but the whole reason for this all to come up was because of HSBC. Media integrity, where does it stand? Well, it seems that, the, especially at the Telegraph and probably at many other newspapers, the boundaries between the advertising department and the editorial team have broken down. So what we see is that the, the newspapers are unwilling to write stories about the, their, their funders. And in a way, you can kind of understand the pressure that's on the newspapers, especially newspapers in, in, as, as, a, as a format have had dwindling readership, really coming, coming across on hard times. And now they don't want to risk upsetting their, their, their big advertisers. But that's leading to a problem where the rich get away with whatever they want. Um, you had Peter Oborn on the show, didn't you? We did. We did have Peter Oborn um, on um, Islam Channel's The Report, which I produce. And it was really, really interesting because some of the things he came out with, some of, he was talking about a lot, much wider issues. He was talking about HSBC, why the accounts were closed down initially, the Muslim accounts, which he had written an article about, which then wasn't published. And he was talking about how American institutions had a big role in this, you know, the wider war on terror, you know, and the how, how now... British organisations and British individuals were being affected because of something going on in the US. Nadim, can I bring you in? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, I think with especially the HSBC debacle, I think there is a, a lot of resonance of what sort of uh, Kalim was saying in terms of the lines between editorial and advertisement have been, been very blurred. Uh, and that's very, very problematic for a lot of people, but especially a community that is already facing abuse and, and racism and, and, you know, all sorts of other sort of mistreatment, basically. Uh, the question that, you know, I would want to raise is, well, you know, that's the case with HSBC, which is sort of seemingly kind of benign issue, uh, although it obviously does affect uh, a lot of people and uh, you know, people's livelihoods and so on and so forth. But it's, it's a seemingly benign issue. So the question we really have to ask is, how bad or, or how, you know, how much uh, integrity does the media have when it comes to reporting on issues that are affecting Muslims? And that's the question I would want to raise. Yes, I mean, you're a journalist. You spend your time trying to get interviews with, with uh, politicians and stuff. I've always wondered how much pressure is there from the politicians to sort of give them an easy ride? Because, you know, if you give them, if you go in too rough, if you really ask those tough questions, they might not want to come back on you. Do you know what I mean? You might get sort of blacklisted from that government access. And sometimes it can be perceived that that's one of the things that, that happens with, with, with the major politicians. They get a bit of an easy run of it. With journalists, I think we face pressures from so many different sides, uh, whether it be um, who you're getting comments from, um, the editorial line of any given publication, um, and then, you know, as we've seen advertisers, etc. so many different platforms. So I guess one of the things that you have to sort of go back to is that integrity and what is in the public's interest to know. If the public deserve to know something, even if you have a good relationship with somebody, even if you have a personal relationship with somebody, you have to look for what is the greater good. You have to look for what is the real story and how it needs to be reported without 
without taking into account particular friendships with any given person, because that's what a journalist does, right? The journalist is there to tell the story and to tell it how it actually is and needs to be told. But one thing I will say is that, for instance, with broadcast media, like we have organisations that we buy footage from when they're international stories. And one of the things that really, really hurt me and made a lot of my team and a lot of us uh, at at the Islam channel really think about was when Chapel Hill happened, Reuters didn't have footage. AFP didn't have any footage. Nobody had any footage. So therefore, when people were reporting it, it was like, well, you know, it's not a big enough story for us to get footage. We had to actually call Reuters and say, why haven't you covered this? Why haven't you sent the footage through? Because we're running this story and we need this. And they're like, well, if enough people request it, then we might have to go out and get it. Uh, I was going to touch on a point that Yasmin made uh, in regards to the journalists are there to tell the story. Uh, and as much as we sort of say that, you know, the, the line between editorial and advertisement has become blurred, um, I think there's also like an element of political expediency now within, you know, newspapers and the way they report things. Um, so looking back at the HSBC issue and talking about tax dodging, this has become a very big political issue as of late. Um, where, you know, both both parties, both major parties, Labour and, and Conservative, are accusing each other of, well, you know, you're harbouring you know, tax, tax dodges and you're harbouring your... your who, who, who's more in bed exactly. with banks? Right, exactly. Um, and, but, but this is nothing new. This is nothing new that the media has not reported a story or has sort of misreported or glossed over the details. You know, uh, back in sort of one example uh, from the Olympics, one of the Olympic sponsors was uh, Dow Chemicals. And Dow mm. Chemicals bought uh, Union Carbide, which was responsible for the Bhopal disaster. And that, that was something that was never covered. Um, you know, that, and, and Bhopal, is, you know, the, the effects of it are still going on. So this is nothing new that the media has glossed over or mis- misreported a story. Obon hit on a really important point in his article when he said that the job of journalism is actually almost a constitutional obligation to hold people to account. And to hold those in power to account. And I've always felt, and maybe I'm biased here as kind of like a, a the, the little guy, but I've always felt that the obligation of journalists is to hold those in power to a higher level than the rest of us. Um, and sadly, from, a, from sort of an expediency point of view, in, as working as a journalist, it's easier to burn the small guy. And by burn, I mean sort of like, do a hatchet job on them, do a really nasty story, because you know you're not going to see them again. You know they're not going to be another story with them. You know there's not going to be much lashback because they don't have the money to take you to court, as opposed to a huge multinational who maybe pay your bills or a big politician, which you have to go back to for another politician uh, for another story next week. And so that, that moral obligation to, to hold those in power to account is actually a very hard one to maintain in some regards. Well, integrity, right? That's what it is. Integrity, comes down to integrity. You have to be able to trust journalists. I mean, Kathy Newman is one very, very clear case. When you lose faith, when you you feel like you can't trust a journalist, then they're no longer longer there to tell you the news. Then you can't believe them because that's where you get your news from. That's where we all, for the general public, that's where they understand what's happening in the world from. I mean, Kathy Newman and what happened after that with the video that emerged, it was like, okay, well, what she's saying isn't true. And this is, you know, this is emerging. And the fact that she accepted the mosque's apology. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely ridiculous. She knew that she hadn't been ushered out. She knew that basically she had made a mistake and gone to the wrong place. And then she still accepts their apology. Yeah. 
and it because it it, it it feels like open season in the in the media against so, Muslims. So can I ask you both? How do you think it does this sort of? We're talking about media integrity here, but how does this affect the Muslim community, Nadi? Well, actually, I think that you guys hit the point brilliantly um, in saying that you know that you know, come back to your example about AFP and Reuters not running these stories. It's it's not people don't want to hear about Muslims being. Um, discriminated against, you know, yeah. uh, unless you're Muslim, it's the it's, right? the, it's, it's the hierarchy of victims. Exactly, it? exactly. You people don't want to hear about this. And with the Kathy Newman, people were so sort of eager to believe that Muslims had done this poor journalist, you know, yeah, and, and ushered it, her out, and they done they done her wrong. They they it, it, her. it hits the prevailing narrative right. that Muslims treat women badly. Exactly, women aren't invited into the mosque. And you know what's and, really and interesting. She was playing to that stereotype. On both of those situations, it was then uh, the community reaction yeah. which changed things. It was yeah. then the community who came out and so we're talking about both of those situations saying, yeah. actually, Kathy Newman needs to apologise and actually, Muslim lives do matter. Yeah. And the, I mean, this, this is one of the things that we've seen. Social media as a tool to hold to account the people who should be holding people to account. Right. So accounting the accounters, as it were. Um, accountants. I, yeah, accounting, accounting, accountants. Um, but and, and that's apparently become one of the roles and one of the, the positions of social media. Mm. Um, I want to talk very briefly about uh, sort of like the hierarchy of victims and, the, and this sort of idea in case people aren't, aren't really aware of it. Yasmin, it's sort of your, your, your field, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Completely, completely. I think what it comes down to, I mean, we've touched on a few different threads here, whether it be access, whether it be sometimes fear, you know, like we said, with connections and, 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 and bigger stories and better stories and continuing to report. But the, the main point in all of this, um, and we have touched on this, is honest journalism and is being there for what what reason are you there for? Are you there to tell the story? Are you there to make friends? Are you and, there and, to, 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 you know, follow a certain discourse and narrative? Or are you there to, to report on the realities of what's going to taking place? And I think it's about covering all stories with their their equal due balance, regardless of the race or religion, of the of the perpetrator or the victim. So for example, um we you see if if it's a Muslim victim in of a crime. Um, whether it's um, the, the killing of an uncle in, in uh, Birmingham or a sister, a uh, hijabi sister in Cambridge or the Chapel Hill killings, the coverage is much, much smaller than, for example, if it's the other way around and it's a, a, a Muslim perpetrator and a, and a non-Muslim victim. And, and this, this hierarchy of victimhood and, and who, is, who is a more relevant victim, I, I don't think this is... Exactly true, but it does hit on a on a on a kind of a point that I, I sorry I saw a meme and it said um, uh, if you if you want to understand the hierarchy of victims, um, you need to look at the fact that there are two hundred um, Nigerian school children still missing, and everyone's given up talking about it, um, but there are still regular stories about the search for Madeleine McCann. Well, I think the issue in terms of what we see and what we don't see in the media is, is what, for instance, car. You know, ethnic, ethno-religious genocide took place in car. Mm-hmm. You know, the UN declared this. You know, a couple of months ago, during it's actually during uh, the Charlie Hebdo sort of time where the UN came out with their report, nobody heard anything about it. You know, we saw this take place and, and no, we didn't see marches, we didn't see protests, we didn't see anyone even raise a finger about what was taking place in, in Central Africa when Muslims were being um, ethnically cleansed. 
Um, and, that's, and that's not a small word to use, you know. And this isn't even well, this isn't a human rights organization. This isn't human rights watch said this over a year ago. Amnesty International said this over a year ago. This is the UN now, you know, the yeah. UN coming out with their report and finally declaring that. What I wanted to ask you both about was language. Um, now we hear a lot about this um, media narrative and discourse, but what about the language that's being used, for instance, when we're calling certain, whether it be the use of the word militia, extremist, whether it be the use of the word terrorist, whether it be the use of any particular language, how do you think that affects and uh, shapes uh, what people take from media? Well, I think one of, the, one of the things that I found striking about a report that came out a while ago was um, for, for every positive story about Muslims, there are 21 negative stories about Muslims. And even in the positive stories, in the vast majority, they related to people who the, the story identified as moderate Muslims. Um, and so the media built, has built up this, this narrative of moderate Muslim, radical Muslim, extremist Muslim, Islamist Muslim, and good Muslim, bad Muslim. And through doing that, it creates um, a, a, a peer pressure to conform to a view of Islam, which is not being put out by um, people who actually have the best interests of, of the religion at heart, but by people who are looking to, to create conformity within society. Nadim, I, I want to ask you, do we have any sort of historical examples of, of uh, groups of people being disenfranchised in, in this sort similar sort of manner? Oh, then yeah, plenty, plenty. Um, uh, probably, a, probably a very recent example that a lot of people can um, probably either still remember or have heard about recently is the um, Rwandan genocide, Hutu and, and the Tutsis. And, you know, they, it became such a, a case where basically, um, you know, each tribe was basically saying, well, if you're that tribe, you know, you're effectively... A, and these people have lived side by side for decades without any any problem, and then all of a sudden it's oh you, because you have a particular label, we're going to um, you know uh, kill you basically and, and and try and wipe you out uh, from this country. Uh, although I want to make one quick point as well that it's almost sort of Pavlovian um, in in the way that you know, the language has been used um, mm. since uh, before nine eleven even, um, and it's become a case now where any time. Muslim is mentioned, unless it's prefixed, as you said, with the moderate, you know, good Muslim, um, it's, it's a Pavlovian reaction where Muslim equals terrorist, Muslim equals, you know, extremist. You, know, you don't have to add that caveat now that's just assumed by the population. Okay, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you both. Now, uh, we had the Leveson inquiry um, and we did see some changes being implemented into... Um, um, trying to tackle the sort of misreporting, etc. Do you think anything has changed? If it has, um, what has? And if it hasn't, um, what more needs to be done? Well, the Leveson inquiry was a, was a tough one because fundamentally, I am generally opposed to the government getting too heavily involved in controlling what the press can and can't do and can and can't say because that's a rocky road that leads to um, an author a more authoritarian state where the press can't hold people to account, perhaps in the way that they'd want to, like what we've seen in Kenya, um, where you can't print stories about terrorism with, unless you get a government licence, um, and you have to be towing the line. Um, so in that regard, I, I tend to kind of agree with some of the papers, but the problem is that the papers haven't policed themselves properly, and the new system that they've put in doesn't seem to be any better than the last one. 
So at the moment, we seem to be in a, in a catch-22 and stuck with the, with the same problems that we've had. Um, I think the problem that we have at the moment is that we're almost sort of it's a circular argument or circular problem, basically. Um, so effectively, we're having uh, we're, we're at an issue now where the predominant narrative is that you know, Muslims are extremists, as an example. Um, and then the media fuels that. And then the people want to read more about that and so on and so forth. So that's why you have an issue. A vicious circle. A vicious circle. Exactly. That's why you have issues where Chapel Hill shootings that was not reported. That's why you have issues where people are so readily and willing to believe uh, Cathy Newman. Um, and, I, and I don't think any inquiry is going to help that until the predominant narrative is challenged and changed. And as you said, you know, I think that's you know, social media and, and Muslims um, in journalism and Muslims in media and social media activists are going to have to do that. It's not, we can't rely on any inquiries to, to do that, basically. Colleen, before I wrap up, I'm going to give you literally 30 seconds to say what you want to say because I know you want... You'd... Yeah. On the edge. I'm dying to say something. It would be remiss of me um, when we're talking about a, a banking story and these sorts of things to, to not point out the fact that the banks have been closing down accounts for Muslims, Muslim organisations, uh, Finsbury Park Mosque, Interpal, Hugs, Cage have been operating without a bank account now for a year and it's being used as a nefarious means to try and silence the Muslim community. Um, and... It's something that, as a community, it's a really big issue that we have to get behind together. Um, and I, I, I really felt it was important to make that point. Most, most definitely. I think we raised a number of issues here. As a journalist myself, I think this is an issue really quite uh, quite central to me and and, and, um, and as to how it shapes um, lives for Muslim, the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Um, my philosophy being always trust the truth um, because there's, there's, no, there's no losing in that. Right. Okay. Inshallah, we will be back with another episode of Unscripted. Thank you, Kaleem. Thank you, Nadim. And from myself, Yasmin. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.